Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, in 1780, captured American naval officer Joshua Barney, escaped from prison in Plymouth, made his way to London, and with the help of some English sympathizers to the American Revolution, was able to take the ferry to Ostend, the principal port of the Austrian Netherlands. During his journey, he struck up an acquaintance with an Italian noblewoman after curing her seasickness. Grateful, she insisted that he accompany her by carriage to Brussels, where in a certain hotel, a porter ushered the two of them into the presence of the Holy Roman Emperor, Joseph II of Austria. As Barney remembered it decades later using the third person, he was surrounded by big-whiskered Germans and spruce Italians who eyed him with a state of surprise equal to his own. Barney's was far from the only interaction between American rebels and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, its rulers, or its inhabitants. Take, for example, the proud parents who in 1778, at the baptismal font of St. Stephen's Cathedral in the heart of Vienna, had their infant son christened Benjamin Silas Arthur Schuster. His first three three names, those of the three American commissioners then in Paris, Benjamin Franklin, Silas Dean, and Arthur Lee. This is one of numerous anecdotes and instances that Jonathan Singerton deploys in his new book, The American Revolution and the Habsburg Monarchy, to support the somewhat surprising argument that the American Revolution had a deep-rooted impact in the Habsburg lands, which ultimately lasted through to the 19th century. Jonathan Singerton is currently a lecturer and research associate at the University of Innsbruck. This is his first book. Jonathan, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. Well, the novelty of the title and the University of Virginia catalog was enough to say yes uh, to this. Um, How did, before we define our terms, and we have to define our terms like a bunch of philosophers. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you come to this? What's a Welshman doing in Innsbruck? Uh, how did the leper get to the top of this mountain? Um, that, 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 those sorts of questions. It's a very good question, and uh, it's a, yeah, it's quite a, a journey. Um, first of all, it begins in Vienna, as uh, as some ways this book does as well. Uh, many years ago, I was a student in Vienna at the University of Vienna, exchange student, and at that time, I was enamoured with American history. It's always been a strong passion in my life. And simply uh, being in Vienna, being among the imperial grandeur of that city, I wondered what had happened in Vienna during the American Revolution. What was the reaction of the Habsburg rulers themselves? What was the reaction of the court? And really, what was the reaction of one of these great European superpowers at that time? Something which I'd never read in American textbooks or in uh, standard narratives about the American Revolution. Uh, I had a number of uh, good answers, good leads, and so on like this, but nothing I found completely satisfactory. And so back then I embarked upon this uh, mission to uh, see for myself what was the impact of the American Revolution in the Habsburg lands. And this has led happily over many years to, uh, first of all, my PhD topic and then to the book in front of us now, um, published last year with UVA, uh, with with the Fine Press, University of Virginia Press. And um, yeah, it's been a great journey in a sense of discovery. It's taken to me, taking me to many parts of the uh, former Habsburg monarchy in Europe, uh, to corners of Slovakia, to parts of Hungary, and uh, many parts in Austria, and uh, and also to Innsbruck, where I've been uh, for the last number of years as a as a lecturer and research associate, as you said. So it is. You had to do an incredible amount of legwork for this book, Indeed. and that gets to one of the problems why. 
we might be ready to dismiss um, the Habsburg uh, influence upon or inf the uh, the American Revolution and vice versa, the influence of the American Revolution upon the Habsburg lands, because we have to very carefully say Habsburg lands, since so many of the places where you've been are not now part of modern Austria. Indeed. So as you as you well know, of course, there is no longer a sort of Habsburg dynasty. Uh, it's, it's sort of extinguished, let's say, um, with the end of the Great War and the um, splintering of the uh, former Austro-Hungarian Austro Empire into many component parts. It's important then to explain uh, what it is that we're talking about, what it is the book is about. So this reason I also include a, a map in, in the start of the book um, for um, uh, particularly American readers to orientate themselves. But to uh, briefly explain what is the Habsburg monarchy at this point, it is perhaps familiar for listeners and for readers um, that it's this Austro-Hungarian empire of the 19th century, uh, this famous um, conglomeration mess, some might say, of uh, many different nations and peoples, a prison of nations, as one, uh, one uh, famous uh, quote goes. But uh, it is important to point out it is uh, nowadays uh, the, the countries of Austria, Slovenia, Croatia, uh, Hungary, parts of Romania, as well as Slovakia and Czechia. But importantly for our time period and at the time of the American Revolution, there are also some appendages which play a pretty major role in our story. So uh, Belgium, as it's now called uh, today, was then uh, mainly the, Austro uh, the Austrian Netherlands, as you mentioned with the wonderful piece about Barney at the beginning. Um, but also in northern Italy, uh, the Habsburgs owned at that point the Duchy of uh, Milan, as well as um, some other parts, uh, mainly around Mantua. Uh, Venice was later on a part after the uh, Napoleonic Wars. It wasn't at the time of our story. Um, but uh, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, this beautiful area, of course, centered around Florence and part of the Medici family, uh, had come into Habsburg possession in the middle of the 18th century. And although it's not technically part of the Habsburg monarchy or the Habsburg lands per se, uh, it is ruled under terms of second genitor, uh, that is, by the younger brother of the emperor. Um, and so it's for that reason I've also included in this story because it plays an influential role now and then in shaping the American perspective on the Habsburgs. And the Habsburgs, of course, means that great dynasty, a great family of inbreeding and of many um, important figures uh, in European history. Uh, they are the uh, de facto heads of the uh, Holy Roman Empire, that, again, equally messy conglomeration of states, small and large, in uh, nowadays Germany in the centre of Europe, um, with a brief uh, blip in the middle of the 18th century. They are the heads of that 1,000-year uh, Reich. Um, that's important for our story in, in some regards, but it's not the main uh, focus. We focus most of all on the uh, principal Habsburg territories in Central Europe, along with those in, uh, as I said, nowadays Belgium and Italy. So just to underline that point, mm -hmm. there's the there's not just Central Europe, not just Austria and Hungary and Slovenia and Slovakia and Czechia and bits of Poland and God knows, I, don't, I forget what the relationship of Bavaria is. I think it's independent, but Joseph doesn't want it to. I mean, we, that, that, he wants that. to trade it all the time for the Austrian Netherlands, but he yes. never chooses to. But then we've got the we've got but let's just call it modern names: Belgium, mm -hmm. Trieste, uh, and really most of Northern Italy. All the good yes. part, all the good part, all the good parts, really. Um, so uh, it's an incredible, I mean, it, it's really stunning to realize that in 1780, I mean, it seems to be as, it's not as big as it's ever been, but pretty close. I mean, it's, yeah. it's still a sprawling, it's still a sprawling superpower. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is important even in terms of demography to remember that this is a, uh, a conglomeration of um, a composite monarchy of 20 million souls. So it's quite a sizable number. And when you compare it to the around 3 million um, people in the American colonies in, in uh, what, what becomes the United States, you know, it's a, it's a factor many times larger. It's also a, a very strong, not just demographic power, but also a very strong economic one uh, with many important industries and places of industries in Bohemia, here in Tyrol, uh, also in, in Styria, for example, as well as the Hungarian Plains as one of those food baskets of Europe at that time, uh, a very strong textile industry. And we'll get into later also how these industries played an important role for the Americans as well. Yeah. And as many nations as there are, there are even more peoples. Mm-hmm. ethnicities, tribes within those nations, a, mm-hmm. a dizzying variety of them. I mean, even bureaucrats in Vienna probably can't keep them all straight. I don't know how, how many, you, you probably, do you know off the top of your head, how many languages are being spoken? Oh, it's difficult. To, I mean, you also have things like Greek in Vienna um, and, you know, uh, Yiddish and, and sort of dialect forms of that. Uh, the, it, it's, a, it's a very rich and vibrant part of Europe, and that's part of its strength as well, although it was long perceived by historians to be a weakness, to be a sort of sclerotic uh, nationalism-ridden uh, place. So, because of because of nineteenth-century nationalism and what how that fell out in nineteen eighteen, um, to tell this story of the American Revolution uh, and the Habsburg lands became very difficult because of uh, let's call it nationalist silos. Could you explain that? Yes, yeah, so um, part of, you know, to go into the historiography then of how um, we've seen up to now the American Revolution and uh, this. Central European landmass. Traditionally, this is done in a nationalistic framework, and that's not to disparage it. There's a lot of good work that has come out of that and a lot of interesting work to come out of that, but it it is a a silo. It is a sort of constricting viewpoint in the sense of if you look only at Hungarian reactions or if you look only at Hungarians who were in the American Revolution, there were a number of soldiers and so on who fought in the American Revolution. The same as, of course, we have famous people like um, Kuzisho in, in, in Poland fighting for the American Revolution. Uh, it, it does distort the overall image, especially then when you don't have an even balance of literature and work done, say, on um, Bohemian or on Austrian connections as well. So part of my aim uh, with this book and with my research was to really have a, a holistic view of the Habsburg monarchy in terms of its reaction to the American Revolution. And that is why also it was important to take into account uh, literature and and, uh, and sources from northern Italy, as well as from places like, I said, uh, Tuscany, as well as from uh, Belgium or the Austrian Netherlands, as it was then. And I think this is really an important thing in building this kind of composite, more multifaceted and more true historical depiction of how it mattered for the Habsburgs and their lands. It's how they thought of it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. One one part of the uh, of the uh, monarchy could influence another part, and there were many cases when that was true. Uh, and we, we'll go into some of those uh, examples mm-hmm. later on. Well, you begin chapter one right out of the box. You say the people in Habsburg lands had formed a deep connection with America long before the American Revolution. And my marginal comment next to that said, say what? With lots of question marks mm-hmm. and exclamation points. So could you expound mm-hmm. upon that? Indeed. So just as I wanted to have an holistic view of the monarchy and its component parts in the American Revolution, I also didn't want to begin this story uh, with the events, let's say, of 1775-1776 as a blank slate. They weren't, of course, uh, the, the starting point of the American Revolution in many European minds, nor were they in the Habsburg monarchy. And so I thought it was important to situate then 
what America, uh, British North America, then the future United States, what all of this meant to uh, the Habsburg subjects living in Central Europe before that point. And so the first chapter really tries to situate that, to anchor us into that Habsburg mindset, uh, really from the time of uh, Colombian discovery uh, in 1492 onwards. Um, one of the sort of broad brushes uh, uh, that we can use to describe this is, first of all, the uh, Habsburgs in Central Europe understood the Americas primarily through a Spanish uh, and religious lens. So there were many um, missionaries, primarily the Jesuits, uh, who uh, were active in uh, Spanish America, in uh, Central and Southern America. Uh, these missionaries uh, were overwhelmingly, uh, in many cases, uh, from Austro-Bohemia, from Austria and Bohemia. Um, they were important uh, in their own right as discoverers, and as popularizers. Uh, the Rio Grande, for example, was mapped by one of them. Uh, Baja California was first uh, realized to be part of the of the, the peninsula by uh, an Austrian Jesuit. And so they had a very important legacy in the Americas in shaping our understanding of the Americas, but also in bringing that back to Central Europe. And for example, even as late as the time of the American Revolution, uh, centuries after this uh, sort of high, uh, high point of Jesuit activity, uh, there were still uh, transferences going on. Maria Teresa's uh, favorite preacher and one of her confessors uh, had spent a long time in Paraguay, in modern day Paraguay, um, and she wanted often to hear about his stories about the native, uh, about the sort of indigenous people there. One of the important things then to say is that these religious and Spanish lenses often portrayed then uh, the Americas as a rustic, simplistic, even savage place. This is particularly um, clear to see then for the ordinary folk who attended church uh, and attended masses on Sundays or other days of the week. And if they gazed up in hundreds of churches across uh, Austria and even other parts of the monarchy, they would see frescoes, uh, they would see um, small ornaments depicting the uh, the continents of the world, sometimes three, sometimes four continents, but always seen America in its all primitive form as a half-dressed, naked, either cherub or woman, uh, wearing a feather headdress or feather skirt, often with a crocodile or a monkey or some fantastical animal like that. So there was really this understanding of America as an exotic place. Now, the important thing to remember is that this lasts quite strongly up until the 18th century, but at the high point then of the American Revolution uh, bubbling up to the surface in the 1750s, uh, sorry, 1760s and 1770s, there's an emerging view then of North America and of particularly British North America. And you have in uh, writing, as in uh, you know, books, pamphlets, these kind of things, uh, an emerging view then of British North America being this rather more European and rather more civilized, rather more industrious and promising area. And this comes through through uh, fascinating works by um, Italians, by German speakers, um, even by Hungarians. Uh, I'm thinking of, of one Austrian, for example, uh, Friedrich Wilhelm Tauber, who wrote a number of books on the English colonies, explaining to um, other Austrians and other German speakers in the monarchy uh, what they were, how they functioned and so on. He was born and raised in London as part of the diplomatic branch there and he helped to transfer that. The same as one of the great intellectuals of the Habsburg civil service, uh, Karl von Zinzendorf, had traveled extensively all over Europe, uh, but spent a long time in Great Britain, where he had also acquired a large knowledge of how the colonies functioned and had taken this back to the heart of government. Can we, can we underline him? Because, of course, his name has a certain resonance for uh, people like myself mm -hmm. who've studied American religious history in the 18th century. He's one of those Zinzendorfs. Yes, I think it is his half uncle uh, is the um, is the 
Nicholas von Sinsendorf is the Herrenhutter, um, the Bohemian Brethren leader um, uh, in, uh, in Europe. Other uh, people called Moravian who settled in Bethlehem, yeah. Pennsylvania and in New Salem, mm -hmm. uh, North Carolina, and Indeed. then eventually other, other places. Uh, he he is by far one of the most knowledgeable people about the American Revolution uh, in the monarchy at that time, Karl von Sinsdorf. Uh, because he not only, as I said, traveled to Great Britain in the 1760s, part of his um, expeditions across Europe, his state-funded expeditions to see how other governments functioned, uh, but also because he was a voracious reader. He read William Robertson, uh, the great uh, uh, Scottish historian. He read Robertson's um, histories of America and so on. So he really devoured these texts. He devoured texts by pain. Uh, he noted them in his diaries and he shared them with other people as well. So in this... Is this related to what we see in France going on from at least Voltaire's English letters or even before that, where there's a sort of um, uh, amongst the enlightened, enlightenment inclined, um, there is a, a perhaps a, an Anglomania or certainly an Anglophilia, uh, which you might even find to be greater than you would find amongst the English, which then becomes transmuted into uh, an American, uh, a, a love of, um, the, of America. Um, I think I think arguably you can see that from the 18th century through to people like um, de Chastelou, who's the second in command, third in command of the French army in North America under Rochambeau, and the, all the way to Tocqueville. Um, mm -hmm. Is this the same sort? Are these are these sort of? Is this the sort of? I was joking with um, Friederike Ambert about the two percent of Germans who are liberals. Is this part of the liberal intelligentsia who uh, love the? English constitution and then therefore come to love the American independence movement? Sure, I think um, I think it is it is inclined. I, I like that phrase, uh, the, the Enlightenment inclined um, folk. I mean, it's certainly um, the case that these more, say, liberal folk had uh, a great appreciation. But uh, in the case of, say, the, the nobility, the intelligentsia in the Hatswick lands, uh, it, it wasn't as much of political leanings. You could be a conservative, you could be a monarchist, and you could still support what the American Revolution was about. Because at that time, at that time it was about liberty, it was about uh, defence of uh, rights, it was about the protection of these rights um, against tyranny. This was something that you know, was not controversial, let's say. Uh, in, in many minds. This, uh, this is not the French Revolution, right? This is not the extreme bloodletting. So one of the important points of the book towards the, the end in the epilogue is that really the American Revolution undergoes a profound change after the 1780s, after the events in France, when it sort of loses its um, sort of cleaner, um, more open uh, meaning. Uh, of liberty and of the defense of rights and so on like this. And it becomes connotated with this dirty word, revolution. And as the Habsburgs and uh, Habsburg subjects were conscious of what was bubbling up to the surface in the 1760s and 1770s in the colonies, they were interested in this as a spectacle, because after all, we have to remember this is a cultural phenomenon. This is a spectacle above all. This is war watching, right? We're all guilty of that nowadays, sadly, especially in Europe with the, the war in Ukraine. But seeing and watching and observing foreign conflicts and tensions and so on, this the American Revolution as a civil war was of great fascination to uh, the uh, intelligentsia. To, and, and, uh, and has certain spectacular features, which I tend to forget, 400 ship, a fleet of 400 ships, 30,000 men, a third of them Germans, speaking German, going in 1776, declarations of independence, appeals. This is all, this is, as the Jefferson and the committee intended, this is an appeal to the world. This is a publicity stunt. 
Yeah, and this echo was loud in the Habsburg lands. Uh, the the American uh, Declaration of Independence is published in the Viennese newspapers, not completely, but parts of it are in as early as August of 1776. Uh, it does cause somewhat uh, tensions and scandals. Uh, Maria Theresia is not best pleased about that. She fears that this might cause some trouble, uh, let's say, amongst the Liberati. Um, but again, uh, there are those who see this as, yes, we must be careful and we must be cautious of this. I don't want to make out as if the whole Habsburg monarchy was, you know, chomping at the bit to support the Americans. That wasn't the case. But there are a number of those who are either just interested by the spectacle of it and those who then also verge on to sympathetic and openly support it. And in terms of the court in Vienna, uh, as one of the prime locations for this reception, you have a number of important uh, individuals, members of the Privy Council, members of the state apparatus in the finance department and so on, writing open letters of support to people like Benjamin Franklin, even offering to emigrate there once they are successfully finished with their war, because, you know, in one case, there's one uh, aristocrat thinks they might need a few good aristocrats from Europe after this war because they don't have any at the moment. Uh, for example, yeah. So what what do what do people in finance what do they see as the? Um, this is a very interesting thing. That this is part of a. There's a critique too of the of the English economic project. That's mm. at least from I guess an Austrian physiocrat sort of vi vision of how things. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is something outside the purview, really, of the book. It deserves its own topic in in, in total. But um, the you know the, the the kind of view of this is from an economic perspective in the Hudson monarchy is that this is quite a great chance for them, right? I mean, the one thing to remember about the American Revolution is that it's not just a a uh, sort of political uh, fight as such. This is also an economic one. This is an economic war um, between the colonies and between Great Britain. One of the first uh, things that is done with the Declaration of Independence is to effectively end the monopoly um, of Britain, to say we are open to trade. We throw our arms open to world trade, come trade with us. And in Trieste, you mentioned Trieste earlier as an important site, and it is uh, later on an incredibly important uh, part of this story. Uh, in August of 1776, just as that declaration is being uh, made known uh, amongst the public, uh, there is a, a, uh, a so soldier stationed there uh, who writes to the finance um, chamber in Vienna saying, hey, this is a great opportunity. We ought to get in on this business, as he says, because it made the Dutch and the British so rich and respectable. That now having trade with this, these British colonies, uh, former British colonies perhaps, is going to be a great success for us. And this is just so... Yeah. And do Sorry. people in Ostend feel the same way? Yes, in Ostend completely. Uh, Ostend, again, uh, part of the Austrian Netherlands, uh, one of the major ports in the Austrian Netherlands. In many ways, Ostend is not so much the active player, but more the passive one that becomes active. And I'll explain that briefly. Uh, essentially, at the beginning, Ostend is this small sort of um, port uh, not necessarily a major hub of anything. Uh, Calais nearby is much more important. Amsterdam, of course, is the great important one. But really what's interesting in our story is that Ostend is, is geographically near to the Prince Bishopric of Liege. Now, what is the Prince Bishopric of Liege? Right? I can hear everybody thinking that. Uh, Liege at that time is this thin slither of land that bisects the Austrian Netherlands. So it's in uh, Belgium nowadays, uh, but it, at that time it's its own independent uh, state run by a prince bishop, hence Prince Bishop of Liege. But the important thing to know about them is that's a great uh, gun manufacturing place in Europe. They make a hell of a lot of guns, gunpowder, pistols, cannons, you name it. And in 1776 and after that point, 
they're in a booming time because, of course, war is good for such business. The mayor of Liège writes in, at the end of 1777 that they see only guns in the street, right, piled up in boxes. The whole place is a literal powder keg. And in the beginning of the war, the uh, gunpowder that is needed by uh, the rebels in America, to call them that, because if you're a fighting member, uh, a great superpower such as Great Britain, you're going to need guns, you're going to need gunpowder. And the British have gone straight for that at the start of the war and trying to blow those places up and trying to capture those places. So you need gunpowder, and Liège is one of the best places to get that. Liège uh, or Liègeois uh, manufacturers send it to France, and that's good for a long time. But then 1778, the war comes to France, France joins into uh, the American alliance, and uh, this axis route is cut off. The same then with the war of the fourth, uh, the fourth Anglo-Dutch war with the, the Dutch against the British means that that route north to Amsterdam is also cut off. Happily, there is a canal network that was just uh, finished, let's say, or in, in many places finished uh, in 1776 that connects Liège and uh, the whole sort of Austrian Netherlands economically to where but Ostend. And so Ostend explodes from 1780 onwards when the Dutch are at war and when the French are at war, because really they are the only neutral port on the North Sea. So remember, you have the Spanish uh, join in 1779, the French are already in since 1778, the Dutch are uh, fighting the British then in 1780, the British are fighting everybody. Uh, this is the only neutral port of any significance then. And so uh, the explosion is so great that you go from just a few hundred ships, maybe 400 per year, uh, to over 3,000 per year in Ostend. It is so much that they have to rip down the walls to build a new quarter, that uh, the companies there are just issuing uh, sort of shadowy, um, you know, fake passes as such to say, yes, you know, pay us a fee and we will give you our name and you can use then the flag for your ship. Because the Habsburg flag then is a neutral flag that can protect mm -hmm. cargo. And it's not just the French or the Americans or the Dutch that use it, it's also the British. The Habsburgs helped save in part the Caribbean and not just the British Caribbean or the French Caribbean, the whole of the Caribbean by supplying it continually then using Habsburg ships, using safe, neutral Habsburg vessels. So in many ways, the uh, the last, in many ways, the last thing Continental Congress, if they thought about it, maybe John Jay with, when he's Minister of Foreign Affairs, the last thing they want is for the Habsburgs to come into the war against the British. Uh, they really need yes. this, they really need this neutral commercial power um, uh, to in order to support them, and they and so do the British. Obviously, British Caribbean planters do as well. Yes, and it's actually I think um, I think it requires more research in a sense. But the uh, the Habsburg neutrality benefits to some degree more the, the British in this period. At least that's how I, I sense it. The Americans are actually quite upset in a sense. Um, the first one of the first federal court cases uh, in U.S. history is uh, against the Habsburg um, uh, group, uh, like a trio of merchants. Yes, because they, they are blatantly trading with the British in the sense that one of them hops over to London, buys a few ships, renames them, and then brings them over to Ostend, reflags them and so on, fills them up with British goods and sends them to the British Caribbean. And when American uh, privateers capture them, they say, oh, no, we're neutral. And of course, the Americans don't buy that at all. Uh, they don't buy that they're not uh, sort of British products going to British places. And so there's a long-winded court case uh, that reaches, again, the federal level, the newly created federal level uh, in, in the early 1780s to deal with this. And Americans call out that Habsburg neutrality, that you're not just helping us and our allies, you're helping the British too. Let's let, Rather than move off, let's follow this commercial thread a little farther forward. Um, this is a preoccupation, because I want to, we, we want to focus this by, before we return to what you say, the American Revolution is a cultural phenomenon. We'll get back to that. Um, but if we follow through as a, as a 
a commercial phenomenon, which, you know, I, I know a lot about the American Revolution. I never thought uh, for a minute about this. Uh, if we follow it forward, of course, it's going to it's going to be affecting and then Trieste, I guess, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany as well. And eventually the singular figure of the ambassador to Paris, Thomas Jefferson. So let's let's go with um, let's go with with how Tuscany um, actually come think of it. Jefferson's neighbor Philip Mazzei is also involved in this in this mess. Let's, let's let's talk about Tuscany and Trieste, and then and then maybe finish off with the Jefferson's non-intervention, not action. When I when I mentioned um, absolutely great uh, points to bring up, uh, when I mentioned uh, Tuscany, for example, it's to show again their constant influence in this story. Um, so. Um, just two quick things about them. One, uh, when the uh, Tuscans sort of declare early uh, neutrality or an early um, sort of invitation to American privateers to come to Tuscany, uh, this sends a signal to the Congress, uh, the American Congress, that the Tuscans are somewhat sympathetic to their cause because they have allowed their commerce to continue. And the reasons that the Tuscans have for this is that Essentially, American ships were bringing cod and such uh, goods from the New England fisheries to Tuscany for decades before this time. And this was a very vital um, trading line and they wanted this to continue. They had no real political meaning with their sort of allowance for American uh, privateers and American ships to come to them, other than they just wanted this cod line to continue. Uh, the Americans interpret this as, again, perhaps a sympathetic overture of, oh, they want our trade, they want to continue, that's good. Perhaps they want to support us then politically. And by extension, and it's a big sort of mistake almost, they see that as speaking for the dynasty, the Hapsburg dynasty. Because remember, it is the, the emperor's younger brother that is in charge of uh, Tuscany, uh, Leopoldo, Pietro Leopoldo. Uh, he is a fascinating figure in himself. Uh, at that time, he's embarking upon a, a constitutional project in Tuscany, and he uh, takes, among many examples, the uh, Pennsylvanian uh, Constitution of 1776 as one of his models. And he writes a fascinating, uh, basically, essay outlining his thoughts and uh, what he what he believes uh, this, this Pennsylvania model to be. And he writes, even at the beginning of this, uh, to start with uh, the principles of the Americans is the right way to go about a, a constitution. So even the brother of the emperor uh, is that fascinating. And we haven't even gone into the whole history. That's famously the most radical constitution. Absolutely, absolutely. And here's, here's a Habsburg member. Here's the younger brother of the, the, the emperor himself writing, you know. The future, the future Holy Roman Emperor himself. Yes, again, Leopold II then from 1790 to 92. Absolutely. One of the great geniuses of that age. But that's by the by. And we'll come on to perhaps the, the dynasty and their response uh, to this. But to go back to Livorno, uh, to go back to... Uh, 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 Tuscany and the economic means, they, they do try to keep neutral then because they're under threat mainly from the French and the British. Uh, the British will effectively say to them, if, if you don't stop trading with the French and the Americans, we'll block up the port of Livorno. And they sort of try to make this very difficult neutrality through that. Uh, the Americans try to negotiate treaties with them afterwards, and it doesn't quite work out for uh, more bureaucratic reasons than anything else. Maze, meanwhile, constantly espouses how the Tuscans will be a great opportunity for them, because, again, he has a lot in it. He has a lot riding in this. Um, he's not well regarded, let's say, by the Tuscans. He has meetings with the Grand Duke, but that's that's that. So Tuscany plays an important role. It's, it's featured throughout the book. But moving to Trieste, then we see uh, a rather interesting story. So I've also mentioned earlier how uh, already one individual there in 1776, in August of 1776, looks to the American Revolution as an economic uh, opportunity. 
this is not really followed up by uh, merchants in the city until uh, the closing years of the American Revolution. So from around 1781, 1782, 1783, that time. Uh, in that period, a number of them then uh, attempt to broker connections with uh, the uh, you know, emerging independent United, uh, United States of America. The first successful ships actually tra uh, travel over then in uh, 1780. Two, I believe, um, with the ship Limericano, a very inspired name, I must say. Um, but it proves quite a success. It goes to uh, North America, to Philadelphia and the Caribbean, brings back a number of products and sells those as, uh, for a good profit. The products are typical American ones, rum, uh, tobacco, uh, indigo, uh, sugar, of course. And the ones they take over is, is a rather broad array, but it's mainly ironware uh, from Styria, um, textiles from Bohemia as well as Bohemian glass, which is an important um, thing to come back to later. And these products do so well that really America becomes then such a profitable venture, even just in that first year, that it outshadows the trade the Hapsburgs have um, created, let's say, uh, with India and China with a similar expedition at the same time. And this then, this kind of great American fever, let's say, um, kickstarts uh, numerous ventures to uh, America from uh, Trieste in the early 1780s. Uh, there is the Austro-American Trading Company, believe it or not, that is founded by a quartet of rather experienced merchants. Uh, they have a rather ingenious way of sending over one ship, uh, buying two ships, buying a second ship in America, in this case in the city of Baltimore, and then bringing both of those back so they can sort of double their profits. Um, and then they send two over and bring, bring four back. So it's a very, very clever, lucrative way of doing it. They get state support. The emperor himself um, sort of writes them a privilege to give them, uh, you know, uh, greater access to funds and securities and to uh, really boost them on the, on the stock market when they float on the stock market. So they, they go over to Baltimore and they buy, they actually buy two they, they ships buy from Baltimore ship. shipyards. They, take, they send over yeah, two buy a second ship. and they, they buy a second ship and then they sail two back. It's a very clever, uh, yeah, very clever method indeed. And it's, it's for this reason then that uh, Trieste becomes more and more uh, sort of enamored then with the Americans. Uh, it's also worth pointing out that Trieste is this very dynamic, vibrant place to be in the 18th century. Uh, if you wind back about seven decades to uh, the early start of the, the, the 18th century, this is just a sleepy harbour town as such. It is a very regional place. Um, it is not until 1718, when it's created a free port by the father of Maria Theresa, that it really starts to uh, kick off as a greater, more widely regional area, and then later Mediterranean port, and then later in the late 18th century as a sort of international global port as well. And this is because they have to see this as the main entreport for their um, their goods from Austria. So rather than going north to Hamburg and the evil Prussians, because remember the Prussians and the Austrians don't get along that well, uh, they want to route south to send their goods, and this helps them with tolls, this helps with uh, protecting these trading lines and establishing them. So Trieste becomes, at the time of the American Revolution, this really dynamic, uh, fruitful place to conduct international business. And it's for this reason that one uh, person writes, uh, you know, kind of by coincidence almost in 1783, to his brother who is moving to uh, a, an unknown city, to uh, a city that he thinks is the Philadelphia of Europe. And that is, of course, Trieste. That's what he's referring to. Of course, Trieste, the Philadelphia of Europe. It's so vibrant, dynamic, such a brilliant uh, port to live and work in. Now, well, as a as a as a native, as born in Philadelphia, I uh, I find that hilarious, and I I hope they have a better luck with their sports teams. So I don't know if that they that cross carried over. Um, so, what, briefly, 
Thomas Jefferson, because this whole commercial story goes on into the 1780s. Um, Jefferson is not quite a success as a commercial representative. No, and so uh, as I built this up now, you know, you see Ostend as this place, again, remember, tearing down walls in order to trade, you know, and to capitalize on this, filling the coffers of the Habsburgs with great amounts of money. The same then in Trieste with these new companies, new ventures, you know, the Austro-American trading company and so on. All of that is this crescendo of uh, the early 1780s, and it comes crashing down within just a few years. And there's one person above all to blame for that, and that is Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I might be a bit too unkind to him, but I think he deserves the uh, the blame here, and I'll explain why. So important to remember is Jefferson uh, is, in 1784, the new representative in Paris, the new ambassador in Paris. He succeeds Benjamin Franklin in that position. And together with John Adams, he is the major representative then of the United States uh, for the European uh, states or European uh, countries. Those two are in charge of uh, directing uh, new commercial treaties, treaties of commerce and amity, as they're often called, uh, to really help then the American uh, economic ties with Europe and uh, to really knit them together. Now, treaties of commerce and amity are important because, amongst other things, they sort of lower tariffs. They give favorable conditions and trading conditions uh, for certain nations. Um, so it's important to have these because, of course, it's difficult to uh, trade against uh, another country that has better tariff rates or better access to the market in North America. Um, in this case, uh, Jefferson is pivotal because as a negotiator for this, he has a particular view that is disruptive uh, for the Habsburg designs on America. Now, I can get into uh, the Habsburg's views and, and how they sent a number of commercial agents in America, but just to uh, first explain Jefferson, he is disconnected from the Hapsburg monarchy in a way that his predecessor Franklin wasn't. Franklin had one of his best friends in Vienna, uh, the man who discovered photosynthesis or the process of photosynthesis, uh, Jan Egenhaus, who functioned as his sort of voice piece in Vienna. And also Franklin understood a lot about the condition of Hapsburg monarchy through this connection. The same as John Adams, who had you know, skirted across many places in Europe during the revolution, had gone up to Amsterdam many times, had passed through the Austrian Netherlands, had seen for himself those crates of gunpowder and those great you know, activities going on there. He was also convinced, especially from his conversations with the ambassador, the absolute ambassador in Paris, uh, the, the, the protector, effectively, of Marie Antoinette, uh, Count uh, Florian de Argentou, uh, that the Habsburgs were a great in economic power. Jefferson did not. Jefferson had no friend, let's say, in the Habsburg monarchy. He had very little contact with Igenhaus. Uh, he had no great insight, as Adams had, had done, because he didn't travel to the Habsburg lands. And for that reason, uh, he was sort of on the back foot, as it were. Uh, another reason is that he has a particular viewpoint not only then of the, the American uh, colonies becoming the United States, but also what their economic connections with the world should be. He sees it as it should be limited, that they should be an agrarian republic above all, and that they should mainly trade with Atlantic powers. Uh, so you know, Portugal, Spain, France, Britain, so on like this. That's what's necessary in his view. The others are not so much important. They should try and limit their contact with the Europeans that can poison their political system, that can disrupt them and, uh, you know, cause all these all these bad reasons. So he has this particular viewpoint of how the American economic ties with the world should function. 
It doesn't explain then why he signs a treaty with Prussia in uh, the mid-1780s, which of course has no Atlantic uh, colony or anything like this. It can account for why he uh, signs one with uh, you know, Morocco, with uh, Denmark, even again, Denmark had colonies in the Caribbean, but not Prussia. And I find it's important to explain then Jefferson's uh, economic thinking, also in terms of how he viewed rulers and states. And in this case, the Habsburgs have a very bad rap. Because as Jefferson arrives in 1784, Joseph II, who, as we mentioned at the start, is itching to trade away Bavaria for the Austrian Netherlands, doesn't succeed in that. He starts a war with uh, the, the Dutch Republic, a very brief war. Uh, the only injury is a kettle, a kettle pot, a metal kettle pot, which is why it's called the Kettle War. Um, but effectively, he's fighting this, this skirmish with the Dutch Republic over reopening the Schlelt River in, uh, in nowadays Belgium and, and the Netherlands, which is the access point for Antwerp. He wants to rehabilitate Antwerp. If he can't have Bavaria, he might as well improve uh, what he has, and namely he wants to resuscitate Antwerp, and the Dutch are not having it. At the same time, he has difficulties uh, internally within the Holy Roman Empire, and then as time goes on, 1787, he launches a war uh, in conjunction with uh, Catherine II against the Ottomans, uh, to grab more land there. And all of this means that Jefferson sees him really as a, a meddler, as a warmonger even, as a, a maybe. Yeah, I, I, I haven't read a single word Jefferson's written about the, Austro, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but the, the Holy Roman Empire, combining both despotism and priestcraft, as he might say, there's like a combination that revolts Thomas Jefferson to the core of his of his being. Indeed, indeed. So that, that alone, I mean, you know, at least, Frederick the Great is a meddler too, but mm. at least he's an atheist. Indeed. And, no, and, at, least, and, at least he's not you know, beholden to priests. Joseph, I mean, he had a lot of praise to say for Joseph before, say, 1784, before he arrived in Europe. Uh, he saw he saw the patent of toleration, the edict of toleration that Joseph had issued in 1780. That would be very important to him. Yeah, and allowing sort of greater freedom, religious freedom for minorities such as the Jews. He saw this as great, as enlightened. Jefferson was all for that. He mentions it in his notes and his writings. But again, his view is evolving and shifting in, in 1784. And again, as a, a geostrategic thinker, he doesn't see then the Habsburgs as a reliable partner in that sense. And he doesn't see their trade as mounting too much. He even says so. Uh, within 100 days of his death in 1826, he responds to John Quincy Adams's request to know more about how they formulated their policy with European powers. And about the Habsburgs, he says, I simply avoided having any contact with them. And that's true. The Ambassador, as I mentioned, Count Floyd uh, de Mercy de Argento, uh, the Habsburg ambassador in Paris, is tearing his hair out trying to contact Jefferson, trying to find him because he's constantly traveling to Italy, to parts of France and so on. And so he tries to pin Jefferson down. And when he does, Jefferson lies. He says, oh, we will get to it. Or yes, our powers have expired or are expiring. We can't do this and so on like this. So Jefferson is not entirely to blame, not 100%, but he is the majority of the blame for why then the Habsburgs cannot conclude a treaty of commerce with the Americans. And this, in turn, sold snowballs, so a lot of these companies fall away. Naturally, they would have fallen away in Ostend as people basically packed up after the war and went home. The French went back to the French ports, the Dutch to theirs, the British to theirs, and so on. But in places like Trieste, this was absolutely a disaster because it meant that, for example, Styrian iron from uh, sort of the heart of Austria cannot compete against Swedish iron, which is of a similar quality. Uh, might, you, might, you might say good or better or not, but it can't compete uh, simply in that case, uh, because the tariffs are lower than for the Swedish who have a treaty with the Americans. And so it's really then Jefferson who, who spells the death knell for uh, the uh, the Habsburg trade with North America. And this leads inadvertently, I would say, 
more and more to then this great schism between, uh, say, Central and Eastern Europe and uh, the uh, the West or the United States then in the 19th century. And there's no treaty between the Habsburgs and uh, the Americans until maybe you can count 1828 when they have a sort of informal um, agreement, but until 1838, uh, 60 years after the first American representative arrives in Vienna. That's how long it takes. That's how long Jefferson set things back. Switzerland have representation in America before the uh, the Habsburg monarchy. They are the last great power to have any connection with the United States. Well, let's leave commercial matters and go back to that first American representative. Uh, you, just, you, you write how he you ask, why did William Lee, the first American envoy, enter Vienna under darkness? And why did the Habsburgs see him as a threat? So when we're saying Habsburg here, we're talking about, well, we're talking about the, the Empress herself. Uh, and we're talking about the very top of the, of the, of the, very, of the very steep pyramid of, of, of Habsburg power. And, and, and this gets, we're particularly confusing. We've already talked about uh, Tuscany as a secundature. Um, but since there are so many lands, um, it's all a question of wearing hats and crowns, uh, and uh, and the the monarch, the Holy Roman Empress or Emperor, or, uh, might also is also the King of Austria of Hungary. I mean, one is different place things in different places depending upon. So this gets a tremendously complex. But briefly, why do the Habsburgs regard William Lee as a threat? Nice Virginia boy, I think. Let, let me just unpack a little bit before I, I jump into Lee. So um, it is important, as we remember, that the, the Habsburgs, as we said at the beginning, the Habsburg monarchy is a composite state as such. But in terms of foreign policy, and again, leaving aside the independent uh, Grand Duchy of Tuscany, in terms of foreign policy, Vienna uh, and the court there are the main uh, you know, cockpit for this. They are the directors of that. You have, on one hand, um, a peculiar situation where you have sort of two co-rulers. You have um, Maria Theresa, um, who is is the widow, essentially, of the, the former Holy Roman Emperor, her husband, Franz uh, Stefan, who dies in 17, uh, 60, uh, 1765. And her son, Joseph II, then is the um, Holy Roman Emperor. She, however, still has uh, powers and uh, has uh, the rights then as the Archduchess of Austria, the King of Hungary, and so on. She can't, because a woman can't um, be the and, Empress. So that's... Uh, that's, indeed. that's right. yeah, indeed. So, but she is still, she is still, I mean... She's still she's, important. She is really important. Indeed. And she's particularly important in this case because Joseph is away uh, when William Lee arrives. He is off fighting a war against Prussia over potatoes in northern Bohemia. Um, it's a fight basically over over um, Bavaria. The, the, the Prussians can't allow Joseph to take Bavaria after the death of the elector, which takes place uh, at the end of uh, 1777 and spoils over into this war by the summer of 78. In the summer of 78, that's the same time then that uh, William Lee, this member of the famous Lee dynasty of Virginia, uh, arrives. He has spent uh, a very unhappy number of years up to that point um, sort of uh, at a loose end, he was a, a very interesting figure. Uh, he is part again of that Lee dynasty. Um, his brother um, Francis Henry, uh, uh, Richard Henry Lee, is in Congress. Uh, Francis Lightfoot Lee is is the famous general. Arthur Lee again is a diplomat, and it's really through Arthur, through Richard Henry, that he gets his position in France. First of all, as commercial agent just hides him over because he's had to run away from London where he was a successful alderman, sheriff of the city, a, a good merchant in the city. He's had to leave all of that behind. We repeat that. William, William Lee actually was sheriff of London, of Middlesex County, one of the sheriffs, which is a very, very strange event that this 
a pro, he was already a very revolutionarily inclined when he was sheriff. Indeed, along, along with Stephen Sire, he was uh, one of two American sheriffs of London, and Franklin even wrote home, can you believe it, they're both Americans at the same time, and later he became an alderman of the city. But he had to leave all that behind, because effectively he'd been tarred and feathered as a sort of prominent American dynast, right, uh, at a time when Americans were no longer welcome in the capital, in the imperial capital. And so again, he goes to um, France, uh, he writes desperately to his brother, like, can't you do anything for me? And so on like this. And they, they work him in for sort of this commercial position. It goes terribly because Arthur Lee, long story short, doesn't get along with Benjamin Franklin. There's infight and so on like this, honest, along with Silas <laughs> Dean. Yeah, exactly. He's a, well, a prickly fellow, same as William. And um, he gets named then the ambassador to both uh, Berlin and Vienna, to the Imperial Court in Vienna and to the uh, Prussian Court in, in Berlin. And again, people find this astonishing. I think it's George Mason who says, you know, who on earth named William Lee uh, ambassador? Who could have been so blind and dumb to do that? But of course, it's Richard Henry's uh, pulling the strings in Congress. So the reason I say this is because William Lee is not a good candidate. He he has, um, you know, to put it mildly, very bad French. <laughs> um, and his German is non-existent. And he even admits in a very embarrassing letter to one of his brothers that he's embarrassing to go to school, as he puts it, at the age of 40, uh, to learn languages again. He simply can't do that. He has to make do with what he has. Again, very rudimentary French and non-existent German. And even though the, the court in Vienna is predominantly French-speaking and there are a number of people who speak English there, it is a huge handicap. And so when he arrives in Vienna, in, I think it is May of uh, 1778, um, he is doing this uh, really at a big disadvantage. And he has to rely upon the French ambassador, uh, Bretuil, who becomes later the uh, last prime minister of France, a rather unfortunate fellow, but very interesting fellow, uh, for all of his great help in bringing the American cause to Vienna. Now, I say bringing the American cause to Vienna because, again, he's a representative of the American Revolution very early on in 1778, of course. Um, but his aims diplomatically are threefold. They want to, first of all, get the Hapsugs, if they can, to uh, recognize them politically, uh, perhaps to agree a treaty of amnesty or something similar. Uh, they want to um, strike up trade. They want uniforms above all. Um, Arthur Lee eventually to Vienna in 1777, mainly to see if there were possible trades with textile merchants and so on like this. Nothing really came of it. Um, but they were hoping for economic trade. And then finally, um, of course, Joseph II, as the head of the Holy Roman Empire, that source of those scoundrels, the Hessians, uh, Federica wouldn't appreciate that, but, you know, this source of the uh, Hessian troops, they want to stop this. They want to plug that. They want the uh, Emperor Joseph II to order the uh, Hessian um, princes to uh, stop um, allowing the British to, to buy them and sell them. Of course, it doesn't work like that. Uh, of course, that doesn't come to fruition, but they hope and believe that that is somehow possible. Uh, in Vienna, then, as you say, he arrives under the cover of darkness. It's a rather interesting sort of uh, arrival because there's word already that he's coming. And the British ambassador, a man, a Scotsman, uh, Sir Robert Murray Keith, is a great player of, of the diplomatic game. He knows straight away, he even knows the colour of the, the post chase of the carriage which Lee is travelling in. He knows. And he has prepared for this. He has uh, talked with the state chancellor, effectively the, the third head of state, as some have called him, uh, the man in charge of uh, foreign policy, really, uh, Prince Wenzel Anton von Kaunitz. He has talked to him and got promises of neutrality out of him before Lee arrives. And the reason why is because you can't have these Americans, these what they think of as rebels, being accepted in the court 
as uh, representatives of a, of a foreign country. It gives them far too much credulity and, and ability as, as uh, you know, rebel uh, you know, representatives in that sense. So Keith has already maneuvered to block him at court. And this is disastrous because, again, William Lee has to rely upon the French ambassador. Joseph II, if, even if he were in town, didn't get on with the French ambassador because both were tugging at each other to join each other's wars. Hey, help us fight against Prussia over Bavaria. Hey, help us fight against Britain over America. Both of them resulted in a sort of awkward stalemate. So they weren't best buddies at that time. Bretuili was really a uh, persona non grata then at the court as well. And more so, he was absolutely terrible at, uh, at Lee's introductions. Uh, he introduced Lee to the Imperial Vice-Chancellor at the same time that Keith was presenting English guests. So you can imagine the terrible scene, the awkwardness there. And courtiers are, are talking about this. Like, can you imagine how awkward that was? Could, did you know what they did in scenes like this? He takes him to Schönbrunn, to the summer palace where Maria Theresia is residing, where she basically locked herself up and just knocks at the door and asks the Imperial Chamberlains to let them in. And, and pretends that Lee is just a traveller, just a Virginian who happens to be in town. Of course, they know better. And they know that he is lying and they know that this is not the way that diplomacy is conducted. So they shut Lee out. That's that's why, in a sense, he has to um, enter into darkness. It's also why after about eight weeks, he, and he leaves Vienna with his tail but firmly between his legs. But at the same time, as I said all that, Keith, that great player of the diplomatic game, takes his delegation, his British delegation at one point to uh, St. Stephen's Cathedral, where baby Benjamin was baptised, to pray for the British because the war is going so badly uh, later on. And because he is so despairing at how the Habsburgs are acting, that they are all enamoured with the American Revolution, that they chatter so much about the American Revolution and so on. And he does this uh, really because Lee becomes a big, big celebrity in Vienna. He is fated by all of these courtiers. He's invited to dinners and so on like this because anybody who can really disrupt the court, right, is, is a fascinating person. Anybody who can rile the feathers, the imperial feathers of Maria Theresia is interesting to them. So he is, he is dined and wined by all of these aristocrats. We see it in their diaries and their letters and so on. The only problem, again, is he doesn't speak much French. He can't articulate himself very well. And they kind of grow bored of him in that sense. But at that same point, he helps to really expand the American cause and its ideas and its, its essentially its spectacle, as we've mentioned. In yeah, the Vienna. spectacle. So that, that, that Lee, as a brief celebrity in Vienna, it gets back to this idea of the American Revolution. As you say, it's a diplomatic conundrum, a commercial opportunity, but remained throughout its course in the Habsburg monarchy, for the Habsburg monarchy, it remained a cultural phenomenon. Indeed. So could we could we finish out on talking about that and how that cultural phenomenon led then to a longer lasting influence and impact than we might? Yeah, we, if we even thought it had influence or impact, it turns out it did and it lasted longer than we might. Indeed. There, there are so many points to mention, so many great um, bits from the book to bring up. Uh, I'll, I'll choose just a few of them, if I may, if we have time. Um, one of them that I, I haven't been able to mention up to now, and I think it deserves some mention, is um, is this cultural phenomenon in terms of how the, the Habsburgs themselves, the, the actual leaders, let's say, the actual members of the family, the imperial family, see this. I've already mentioned that Pietro Leopoldo, the younger brother, later the emperor, uh, Leopold II, views uh, rather favorably American constitutionalism and so on like this. This extends in part to his brother, Joseph II, this great uh, Holy Roman emperor, uh, this uh, sort of you know reform-minded individual. Joseph II, when he travels in 1777 to uh, Paris to visit his uh, sister Marie Antoinette, 
uh, ostensibly as a sort of personal visit, but we are in reality to find out why they hadn't had a kid yet, her and, and, and uh, the French King Louis. Um, he has a list of people who he wishes to see, and on that list is Benjamin Franklin, because if we talk about cultural phenomenon and we talk about spectacle, we cannot ignore the importance of Benjamin Franklin early on in the American Revolution. Franklin is, for many people, the American Revolution embodied. He is that person. He is in Europe for the majority of the, the time of the War of American Independence, and he is their representative in that sense, not just diplomatically in France, but to many as the embodiment of it. It's for that reason that he gets over 250 letters from the Hapsid lands from about 100 individuals, people on the borders of, of modern-day uh, Serbia, uh, people in small places like St. Pulten in, in Lower Austria, um, all over, writing to him, offering their, um, their great appreciation for his, his cause, as such as they see it. Uh, and again, I've already mentioned his great friend, um, Igenhaus, who translates his works and sends them to Maria Theresa in Vienna. But Joseph II wants to meet him for himself in 1777 as he's in Paris. Um, he actually gets a uh, sort of meeting established through the Tuscans, because again, the Tuscans are this neutral third party. It's a little bit more kosher if it happens that way. It's not seen as a sort of direct bilateral meeting or anything like this. And believe it or not, the Tuscan uh, delegate invites them both to hot chocolate. So Franklin and Joseph II uh, are due to meet then uh, on one Tuesday afternoon for hot chocolate. Franklin turns up, because again, he has great respect for Joseph as a, as a reformer, much like Jefferson had earlier on. Uh, but he stood up. He's, you know, <laughs> he, he's cold-shouldered. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's left, uh, left waiting for the emperor who doesn't turn up. And I know, and I've seen this now from the documents in the archives, that Joseph was uh, delayed. He was sabotaged by, guess who? The British because they knew about this meeting and they did not want any bilateral meeting between the two you know, great men to happen because the optics of that are terrible. It gives legitimacy to the Americans, so they sabotage it. They stole Joseph enough that when he arrives, Franklin's already gone. And that great meeting between those two minds, akin to Bach and, uh, and Frederick the, the Great, never happens. It's a very sad occurrence. But Joseph has still great respect for them. So that's just a word about the cultural phenomenon and the Hapsburgs themselves. This extends, as I said, to the court, to these people who wrote to Franklin and so on like this. This extends to the individuals in the monarchy. And thinking now widely about how this impacted places and how this impacted them in the long tray, I want to say two things. First of all, one of the great uh, examples of this is a history professor, and perhaps I'm a bit partial, uh, you know, uh, to history professors, but this history professor in the town of Kozice in uh, nowadays Slovakia, it's part then of Royal Hungary, uh, it is almost on the Ukrainian border, so if people want to orientate themselves nowadays. Um, this person uh, is called Johan Zinner. He is a, uh, a professor of universal history at the uh, University of uh, Kozice of Kassa, as it was known then in Hungarian, and he wants to write books about the American Revolution. And the reason he does this is because he reads newspapers from Leiden, from Paris, uh, from Vienna, and he can't make heads or tails. He says about Benedict Arnold in a complaining letter to Franklin, who is this guy? In one, one newspaper, he's a Capuchin monk. In the other one, he's a greengrocer in Norway. In the other one, he's a Duke of Mantua. Like, who is he? And so uh, being a good academic, he wants to find out the truth using sources. And so he wants to go first to see William Lee in Vienna in 78. He misses him, sadly, by a few weeks. Uh, and then he then goes to Paris to meet Franklin and actually is received by Franklin, given letters, given primary sources, as we call them, uh, to write these works. He goes back, he publishes a work then um, 
in uh, 1782, I believe, uh, in uh, Augsburg. Uh, it's basically a primary source edition, listing then the letters of various great um, generals and uh, leaders of the American Revolution, Washington, and so on like this. Uh, it's more biased towards the Americans, although it includes British letters. It shows the British as sort of uh, horrible um, people who mistreat prisoners of war and so on like this. It shows the Americans as virtuous and noble and so on like this. So he's very, very biased in this early work. He creates alongside that a number of other works written uh, sometimes in Latin, those were mainly his notes of lectures, uh, and then other works, uh, two of them, massive volumes that were thought to be lost, they're, they're, I'm showing you on the screen now how thick they are, but very big volumes, 500 pages long, handwritten tomes, um, and he writes these out of his love and passion. Uh, for the American Revolution. And he writes this in a letter to Franklin and in a dedication to Congress, where he calls them angels of the new republic, sent forth by God to guide and comfort the human race. So he sees this as a new beginning, a new epoch uh, for humanity. And again, it speaks back to that point I made that you can support the American Revolution quite openly and quite happily in that monarchy because it didn't have that connotation, that dirty word of bloodletting revolution. Uh, it wasn't yet that sort of... Uh, event in their minds. It was something noble and virtuous, and he could openly uh, write about this. He could openly publish his first book about it and so on like that. Uh, this also, as thinking again broader now, has wider impacts. There is a Hungarian newspaper editor who writes um, rather, say, figuratively uh, in one edition of his newspaper, of thinking about the importance of the American Revolution after the fact uh, in 1783-84. Uh, uh, what was the influence of it? What did it do for them? And he writes that, well, before the American Revolution, what were our discussions in villages around Hungary? Yeah, we discussed only uh, which dog was better, the grey one or the black one or the tan one. Uh, but now, and, and who among us, he said, you know, knew whether the Atlantic Ocean was east or west of us. But now we know where it is. Now we know where America is. Now we have a greater understanding, even in villages, of what the world is about and what is happening in the world. That was the effect in his mind of it. And in Hungary especially, you get more and more people who are enamored with this idea of liberty, this idea of colonies, of, say, repressed peoples rising up. They see themselves always as, as uh, in, in sort of a, a parallel situation then to uh, the British historically in terms of constitutionalism, um, but then more and more after the American Revolution in terms of they are the Americans. That's why people like Kusut, the Lajos Kusut, the great uh, leader of the revolution in 1848, uh, is, is called the, the Washington of Hungary. And there's an important reason why he's Washington of Hungary is because Washington, after the French Revolution, takes that role as being that virtuous, sanitized leader rather than Franklin who um, became persona non grata intellectually in that monarchy because Franklin was that wartime leader in their mind. He was the representative of the revolution. Washington, by contrast, was the, the pure military guy who gave up power and so on. So later on, Washington um, overrides as the most important player. But it has that great intellectual legacy, the residue of revolution, as I call it, in the Hapsa monarchy of inspiring a new generation of people who are seeking greater liberty, are seeking uh, uh, protest against uh, tyranny and centralism and so on. And that stretches well into the 19th century. My guest today has been Jonathan Singerton. He's the author of The American Revolution and the Habsburg Monarchy. Jonathan, thank, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 